Hello and welcome to Grubbing in the Filth, where today we are discussing ants. This is a big old subject, and one that I'm especially excited to get to discuss, because it was ants that reignited my interest in insects. An interest I'd had as a young child, which my dad claims was obliterated for a time by the release of Pokemon Blue. Ants are absolutely bizarre, yet familiar. Both alien to us and yet somehow a reflection of us. They're absolutely class, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Close relatives of wasps and bees, ants are insects of the hymenopteran order. They are incredibly successful, variable animals. Behaviour and physiology can be wildly different between your various ant species. They live within different structures on a physical level and on a social level. Ants have different life cycles, different lifestyles, different mouth parts, different shapes, sizes and colours. To get a good sense of the range of sizes within the ant world, consider that a colony of Carabara atoma, one of the smaller species of ant, that colony could well fit inside the head of a Campanatus gigas, one of the larger species. And there are a lot of them. Ants are all over the place, living in colonies with populations that can reach well into the thousands. Super colonies, comprising of multiple united nests, can achieve populations that reach into the millions. And these colonies can be found everywhere. Ants inhabit most every environment on Earth, and only a handful of places lack a native ant population. Iceland, Greenland, and frustratingly Antarctica. Given how complex, how variable ants can be, and how interesting their strange lives are, I want to use this episode to talk about one thing in particular, and focus in, rather than trying to cover everything in a scattershot way that wouldn't do justice to the broader subject. And so, today we're talking about Flying Ant Day. I wanted to speak to an ant expert, a myrmecologist, and so I'm thrilled to have had the chance to have spoken with Miles Maxke from the Ant Network. Miles is a remarkable scientist who is passionate about ants and passionate about educating. If you find this episode interesting and you want to learn more about ants, the Ant Network is a wonderful resource which is growing all the time. Miles's YouTube videos are informative, fascinating and beautifully constructed. In Miles's videos on YouTube and in my conversation with him, I get the sense of his passion for insects and his belief in their transformative power as educational ambassadors for the natural world. Given his extensive CV, not wanting to sell him short, I asked Miles what his job description is, how he describes what he does. <laughs> That's a great question. You know, I am an early career entomologist, which sort of covers the research side of things. Is that I take complicated scientific concepts and figure out how best to communicate them to the public. And, uh, you know, it, it, as part of that uh, comes in the exhibit and museum, uh, museum and zoo exhibit design process. Uh, we do a lot of different presentations to area schools. So there's also an education component with that that right. goes hand in hand with the science communication aspect of what I do. So then as well as your online outreach, you're taking ants into schools? Yes, absolutely. Of course, uh, our current situation notwithstanding, uh, we've been to over 50 schools and science camps all across the United States and given presentations uh, that use ants and other arthropods to teach bigger concepts kind of in biology, ecology, and science itself. And how do you find the kids respond to, I mean, in particular, we're talking about ants today. How do you feel the kids respond to them? <laughs> they absolutely love them. I mean, there's a reason that that is 
what we use because they seem to react so well to ants. And I think that part of that is because people can relate to ants because ants are social creatures. They live in a society just like what we do. Um, what's awesome about giving presentations, especially to younger kids, which uh, here in the States would be like first and second graders, um, that is actually a lot easier than most people would think because they are automatically fascinated by new things. So all you have to do is kind of expose the things that are really cool about ants already, and the kids just latch onto it. They love it. Like the close relatives, the bees and wasps, ants are social creatures, and it's this social behavior that makes them so fascinating. We have a special word for the kind of social behavior we see in ants. They are eusocial. Eusociality describes a particular kind of social behavior in which animals live in cooperative groups spanning multiple generations, with individuals working together to bring up the young. Within a eusocial insect society, individuals have fixed roles, such as foraging or defending the colony, with only certain individuals having the capacity to reproduce. It's social behaviour that makes ants such compelling animals. Ants, perhaps more than any other insect, have a prominent role within our culture, surely due to the comparisons we draw between their societies and our own. We often focus on their capacity to collaborate, the division of labour and their industriousness. In Aesop's fable of the ant and the grasshopper, the ant represents the value of hard work over frivolous matters. Against this backdrop of industriousness, movies like Ants and A Bug's Life concern themselves with the role of the individual within society. The parallel between ant society and human society is most movingly evoked by the band name Alien Ant Farm. Ants are often used as ambassadors for life on a smaller scale, welcoming us to a different scale of living when we shrink down and honey I shrunk the kids, the ant bully and ant man. Their role as ambassadors of all things small is then made horrific when we swap roles with them in monster movies like them. Our cultural understanding of ants throws up a lot of vague ideas. We've heard of soldiers, colonies and queens. We have this sneaking suspicion that ants might be communists. These cultural notions of ants are rooted in their real-life behaviours, but are jumbled and confused. From this jumble of ideas, we've derived a wealth of ant stories, and these stories then become part of the jumble, feeding back into them. And this jumble of ideas tells us what ants are like and what we think of them. I think it's fine that our fiction isn't scientifically accurate. Even the stories we tell about people aren't based on how people actually live or act. So for me to stand up and bizarrely insist that tales told of ants should be rigorous in their science would be nuts. We falsify, playing off the gaps in our knowledge, letting cultural notions of animals guide our storytelling. And, generally speaking, we realise that, even as we enjoy these stories, we know that caterpillars don't smoke hooker pipes and that spiders don't talk to pigs. We get a lot of great art from getting things wrong. It's okay to get things wrong, but then there's a smug pleasure in pointing out mistakes and knowing the truth. Let's look at an inaccuracy common to ants and a bug's life. It's an inaccuracy that will lead us into a more detailed discussion of how ant colonies function. Ants is the story of a worker ant called Z, a hopeless romantic, ill-suited to the conformist restraints of colony life. Whereas a bug's life is a story of a worker ant called Flick, a clumsy and hapless inventor, ill-suited to the conformist restraints of colony life. Z and Flick both fall in love with ant princesses and both end their stories in happy couples with their respective princesses after going on an exciting adventure. The key error here is that ant workers are exclusively female. It speaks volumes that the writers of these films saw the role of hero as inevitably male. In writing these stories, the creative decision was made that the hero had to be male, despite the overwhelming femaleness of ant society. Rather than lingering on the depressing implications of this creative decision, Let's dive into the topic. Let's learn about the reality of a generic ant colony and the roles of individuals within it. Here in the UK, 
Flying Ant Day is the public facing event of the ant calendar. We'll begin with Flying Ant Day and see where it leads us. Flying Ant Day is something which a lot of people have a general awareness of, particularly in the UK. On a hot dry day in summer, flying ants will fill the air and be found pouring from pavement cracks, revealing colonies that we never knew were there. They mass in the air, tumble into spiders webs and drift cheerfully into the mouths and eyes of cyclists. These flying ants are large, heftier than the everyday ants we're used to. The ants we see day to day don't fly. They don't have wings. How and why then, on flying ant day, are ants flying? They're looking for mates. These aren't the ants we normally see, swarming up and having grown wings. These ones are different. The larger winged ants are queens, reproductive females. The smaller winged ants are males, which we sometimes call drones, like Flick and Z. And so it's on flying ant day that Z and Flick would enter our story. I asked Miles to help explain. So... Of course, Flying Ant Day has different forms in different places all over the world. And uh, the United Kingdom seems to have taken uh, it to the next level because essentially what happens on Flying Ant Day is that Laceus niger, which is the black garden ant, it's the most common ubiquitous ant all throughout the UK and through much of Europe, uh, they have what is called a nuptial flight, uh, otherwise known as a mating flight. So the way an ant colony's life cycle works is that over time, an ant colony will, of course, grow and get to be a certain size. And at that point, they have the resources necessary to invest in young male ants and young reproductive female ants. We call them queens or at that stage, uh, princesses in in, uh, popular culture. And these are essentially winged forms of ants. They look a little bit more like wasps than we are used to seeing. And they will congregate in the nest near the nest entrance, and they will wait until the conditions are absolutely perfect before they fly off and have a big mating flight, a nuptial flight. So what seems to happen often in the UK is that the environmental conditions necessary for that sort of coincide across the entire country, or at least much of the country, resulting in what is dubbed flying ant day, because you have these congregations of mating ants up high in the air that can get so dense that they're actually picked up on weather radar systems. Uh, So I'm sure that many of your listeners from the UK are totally familiar with this. Uh, One day they're going about their business, everything is normal. And the next day there are flying ants absolutely everywhere. And uh, what's happening there is that they're mating. The queens and the males go up in the air. The females will mate with more than one male generally. And unfortunately for the male ants, they only live for a couple of weeks and they die almost immediately after mating. So they fall to the ground, pretty much die. They become food and and their resources kind of go back into the ecosystem. Many of the queens will also die that day to birds and spiders and maybe they fly into the river. Uh, But the queens that survive will land. They'll take their wings off, dig a hole down to the ground, lay some eggs, and that's how a new ant colony begins. And then a few later, a few years later, they will uh, actually have enough resources to produce more reproductives, and then the cycle uh, kind of begins again. So are the males then dying as a direct consequence of mating? You know, it's something about the process that's killing them, or are they failing to feed after the fact? Yeah. So kind of a couple of things, as far as we can tell, they don't die, I guess, within seconds of mating, but they will die within hours. And part of that is they've used basically all of the energy in their bodies to get themselves up into the air, to go mate with the females. And 
another part of that is that their entire purpose has been fulfilled. The only purpose a male ant has is to mate with the females. Uh, and after that, he, he has no further purpose and he will not be accepted back into his home colony. Male ants aren't able to feed themselves. So it's essentially a matter of, you know, there's, there's no more resources. Sort of that biological clock has run out and then they die. The other thing is that many of them will fly into something like a spider web or, or just eventually get eaten by another ant that kind of finds them on the ground. So there's a lot of different mortality factors, uh, but it, it, they die. Uh, I mean, the longest they might survive would be a, a day or two after the mating flight. So what about the queen ants then? After they've mated, what are the, the early challenges for a queen ant? Yeah, so there are many challenges. Um, some of those queens will have been parasitized by these parasitic flies where they will actually lay the eggs on or in the ants and the maggots will come in and eat the queen while she's alive. So that's a, a huge challenge for them to avoid those parasites uh, when they're flying. And then once they get down to the ground, they have to also avoid predators. So they don't want to dig down into another ant nest. They don't want to run into like a little predatory centipede, anything like that. So there's also the predator factor that goes on down there. One of the bigger causes of mortality for them really is if they chose a bad spot to dig their first claustral chamber is what they're called. And that could mean, oh, the ground is too dry or the ground gets too moist. Um, it could mean that it gets too hot. She didn't dig deep enough, so it's too warm or it's too cold. So that micro uh, climate, that kind of micro habitat as well, uh, is really, really critical to the survival of the colony. It's arguably the most important decision that queen will ever make is choosing where to begin her colony. Um, the other thing is that if we're talking specifically about Laceus niger, which is, again, that black garden ant species, they are what we call fully claustral, which means that they will never go out and look for more food while they're starting their colony. So because queen ants have, you know, uh, let me backtrack here. Insects uh, are essentially three segmented animals, right? You have the head the thorax, which is the middle section, and then the abdomen, which is the end. In ants, it's a little different. You have the head, there's what's called the mesosoma. Then there's the petiole, which is this little part that uh, connects the kind of middle section of the ant with the abdomen. And then you have the gaster. But the gaster is full of fats and ovaries and food stores. And then the mesosoma or thorax has the wing muscles, right? So because these queens fly high up in the air and they have to kind of get their large bodies moving around, they have to have these big, big wing muscles. But as soon as they get to the ground, they're not using those wing muscles at all. So they metabolize them. So the point here is that these ants carry with them a lot of nutrition that they use to feed the early larvae that they have when they're starting their colony. And if an ant doesn't have enough food stores, that's a really, uh, there's a good chance that she's going to fail to establish a good enough colony to be successful. So you mentioned earlier how the nuptial flight, how the flying ant day itself, it begins with well-established colonies. So at a certain point, the colony will begin producing queens and begin producing males. Now, that sounds like a conscious decision being made by the queen or somehow by the colony at large. So how is that decision being made to begin producing a new kind of ant? 
Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And I'll be honest, myrmecologists, which are scientists who study ants, aren't totally sure on the entire process. But we do know some, some things that are useful to understand. And one of those is that male ants, male bees, male wasps, essentially male uh, insects of the um, family or order Hymenoptera, they are all produced from infertile eggs which means that they are eggs laid by the queen or the female that haven't been fertilized by a sperm. So they only have the genetic information of their mothers. So to get a male ant, you have to lay a unfertilized egg. Okay. And that's a fairly straightforward process for the queen to produce uh, infertile eggs. It gets a little more complicated if you want to create a queen ant. So as far as we can tell, a queen ant comes out of a fertilized egg that at the start of it is just the same as any other fertilized egg that would produce a worker ant, a major ant, a soldier ant, whatever it is in that colony. That would also be capable of producing a queen. So it's actually kind of the level of care and the amount of food and the kind of nutrition that that larva, which is the stage after an egg, that that larva receives that will determine what kind of cast of ant it will become. I see, okay. See, I quite like the fact that, and this may be anti-scientific or something, but I like the fact there's still stuff we don't know. You know, I do too. I mean, that's what gets you up in the morning is there's new things to learn about. I mentioned earlier the variation in ants, the extent to which behaviour differs from species to species. The life cycle, which Miles has outlined here, is that of Laetius niger, common black ant and the ant that we in the UK are probably most familiar with. But this isn't how all ant colonies work. I asked Miles for some examples of ants which live very different lives to Laetius niger. Yeah, I can give you a couple of different examples. Um, so, again, Laetius niger is what we call fully claustral, which means that they have all the kind of food and nutrients they need to start a colony. We also have a lot of ant species which are referred to as semi-claustral, which means that they have to forage during that founding process. So we have species like, uh, well, in genera like Manica, uh, some species of Pogona myrmex, which are harvester ants. They have to forage during the process to get enough food to get their colony going. So that's sort of a less extreme deviation of your standard ant colony beginning. And then you have a process called budding. So this is how something like an army ant creates a new colony. So army ants are found all over the new world. And what's fascinating about them is they have these gigantic queens. Okay. They are absolutely dwarf any of the other workers in the colony. They are huge, very cumbersome animals. And when they want to form a new army ant colony, they will produce the queens. And then the colony will go through a process called budding, where it will actually split into different parts and send some of the cavalry with the new queen and some of it will remain with the old queen. So that's another way an ant colony can get established. And even some of our more common ants will do that. Not just army ants, but they're definitely the most dramatic example of a process like budding. We have an ant which is local to us here that I found I found it in a graveyard on a cemetery open day. And got quite a lot of negative attention because I was breaking into this log full of ants on top of a sarcophagus. <laughs> essentially desecrating a tomb. Uh-huh. It was a, a Maya Mica rubra. 
Yeah, Myrmica rubra, yes. Myrmica. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that ant then, I later learned there's more than one queen within the colony. That's right. So, of course, we have the semi-claustral, fully claustral budding process. And related to that is also the number of queens in a colony. So Laceus niger, as far as we can tell, is pretty much always what we call monogynous or monogyne. There's only one queen. And then we also have something like Myrmica rubra, which is polygynous, which means it has more than one queen, or at least it has the capability of having more than one queen in an established colony. This ant, Myrmica rubra, is better known as a red ant or a fire ant, so-called because of their painful sting. These ants are part of a subfamily of ants called the Myrmicinae, or at any rate, that's what I think they're called. Thanks to Miles, you now know that I don't necessarily know how to pronounce the name of these ants, even though... I have been stung by them in a graveyard, and therefore I've surely paid my dues. If you want to visualise these ants with their many queens, they are red with delicate, nodulous bodies. The Myrmicinae are characterised by their petiole, the little link between the middle section, the thorax, and their abdomen, being made up of two nodes, almost looking like a kind of chain link, making them look, for my money, rather delicate. You also have a process, not to throw too many big words at you, called pleometrosis. And that is when multiple queens of an ant species will work together to start a new colony. But within pleometrosis, you can either have ants that will tolerate more than one queen in the colony forever, or they will only allow multiple queens to be present until the first workers hatch. And then then the workers will kill all of the queens but one. So it's a risky way to start your colony. But evolutionarily, it seems to have been advantageous for some ant species to take that risk because it allows them to create more workers in the first go of it. I watched a video on your channel about a parasitic species, one of the Laetius species, which parasitized another colony. Could you explain what parasitism is and how that process works? Yes, that would be called social parasitism, and we see it in different ant groups. But in that particular video, we had a laceous social parasite. And what they do is they go through the same mating process we talked about earlier. But instead of landing on the ground, digging a hole and starting a new colony, they go to the ground and seek out an ant colony of a different species that has already been established. And then using some really sophisticated pheromone um, mimicking, they will actually enter that colony The worker ants will often think that they are a member of the colony, so they let them in. And then they will go down, find the queen's chamber, and assassinate the queen. They'll jump on them, smear their blood all over them so they smell like the queen, kill the queen. And then they take over the colony. And of course, if this works perfectly, the worker ants are none the wiser. They have no idea that this has really happened. They might sense that something is wrong, but they can't really tell what is going on. And that new socially parasitic queen will have taken over. And then she's going to be able to start laying eggs and raising ants of her own species using the worker labor of the colony that she just took over. I sort of, I love the way that we have this vague notion of ants in their lives. And we know they have queens and colonies and nests and things, but most people's understanding becomes kind of hazy beyond that. And I love that with insects, with ants, the extent to which there's more and no, which we're we're broadly unaware of it, even though it's going on under our nose. I mean, hopefully, we get outreach with kids and things like that. 
that's something that you found in them, the, the pleasure there is in taking the next step in terms of your understanding of an everyday creature. Well, it's, it's incredibly exciting to study animals that we know for certain we don't understand, at least not entirely, because you know that there's quite a bit more to be done and more to learn about. And so if you can show kids especially that there's a lot of room for exploration and for new work to be done, that they can be explorers and adventurers in their own right, I think that has not only a lot of potential to inspire, but it's also really important for them developmentally to have that experience. So with that in mind then, Miles, what was it that inspired you to dedicate yourself to the study of ants and to entomology more broadly? (laughs) Yeah. Well, so, you know, I warn you, this is a little bit of a long story, but we can get into it. I was not somebody who grew up wanting to study ants. I knew that I absolutely loved animals. I was deeply and I remain deeply inspired by Steve Irwin, who is the late crocodile hunter. And I knew I wanted to dedicate myself to the exploration of life on Earth, something related to biology. But ants came along a lot later. So I'm going to take you back to second grade, which would be the second year, second or third year, I think, of primary school uh, across the pond. Okay, about seven. Uh, yeah, about six, um, six or seven, I think. And we were out at recess. Okay. And the kids were playing soccer, which I, I'm sure you would refer to as sure. football. And we'd call recess playtime. Recess would be playtime. I yeah. see. I see. Well, you know, it was it was playtime, <laughs> right? But uh, I guess we have a more formal name for it. But sure. anyway, it's recess, and the kids are playing soccer. And I was never the most athletically gifted of the students, so I was picked pretty much dead last for that game. And because we had an uneven number of players, I was sitting sort of on the uh, sidelines looking at ladybugs, which were in a bed of clover eating aphids. And pretty quickly, I started to realize that there were ants all over my body. And then it was like, oh, no, they are biting and stinging me. So, of course, I'm quite young at this stage, but I've got ants all over me. It's starting to hurt all over my body. They're biting me. So I ran over to the playground supervisor, and it turns out I had sat on top of an ant nest in the field, and I hadn't noticed of course, until they, they really reacted to it. So I ran over to the playground supervisor and the teacher took all of my clothes off except for my underwear and started hitting me with my clothes. Of course, she was trying to get all of the ants off of me, but I didn't quite understand what was going on. So, of course, I'm under attack. I go to the teacher and she starts hitting me. So that's already sort of uh, traumatic. <laughs> uh, and as you can imagine, uh, on a playground, this is going to cause a lot of commotion and get a lot of attention. So, so now we've got a couple hundred kids surrounding me, you know, watching some of them laughing, others just totally horrified at what was going on. Eventually, we got most of the ants off. I ran into the bathroom to get the remainder that uh, had infiltrated my underpants and got sort of that taken care of. And I was totally traumatized. I mean, I did not like ants for years after that. And in sixth grade, uh, the teacher gave us an assignment, which I think is just a genius assignment, where she said, I want you to learn about something that you don't like. And at the end of this project, you're going to tell me if you were right to not like that thing, or 
if you were wrong and that your opinion has changed. And I thought, aha, I'm going to get an ant farm. I'm going to learn more about ants. We're going to see what happens because I didn't like ants at the time. So I got kind of one of those Uncle Melton classic sand ant farms that you see. And it turns out ants are absolutely fascinating. And I've never looked back since. I've been studying ants for, I think, almost over 10 years now, I think. Um, And it's just absolutely fit into my passion for exploration and for also sharing science because ants are so compelling to people that there's a lot of opportunities to use them to get folks excited about the natural world. Absolutely. As you were telling your story there, I was trying to imagine how I would have felt as a child if I'd missed the start of this incident and then turned around and seen my teacher setting about a child with their own clothes. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure it was well talked about for a long time. Okay, bit of a curveball now. I'm going to read you a Facebook comment from our local neighbourhood Facebook page on Flying Ante. And this person says, They're in my hair, on my face, down my shirt and up my bloody shorts. I hate them, I hate them, I hate them. But ants, of course. Do you think you could win that person round? Yes, absolutely. I think you can win just about anyone. Um, of course, not in that moment. So if somebody's <laughs> got <laughs> dealing with a bunch of ants in their hair and in their shorts, they're not really going to be very receptive to me being like, but did you know ants make up most of the uh, you know herbivory in the Amazon rainforest? You know, I can't just throw exciting things at them at that point in time. But yes, you could absolutely win over almost anybody who has preconceptions about ants or other insects, uh, if you are in the right setting and you've kind of got the right tools to do so. So if someone had handed you an ant farm when you were being beaten with your own clothes out on the playground, that would not, <laughs> that been would not have been an optimal engage you. <laughs> situation. You're absolutely no. right about that. Yeah. But of course, a couple of years later, when I was ready to kind of reconsider and to learn about things, you know, that was the perfect time for me, it turns out. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for answering all my questions. I guess it'd be really good to let people know what else you've been up to and about the Ant Network and where people can see what you've been doing and what's next for your channel. Sure. You know, I'll talk about that as I can. Uh, just like everybody, we've been thrown off by current uh, world events, um, but we're doing our absolute best with it. So, Right now, the Ant Network is sitting, uh, I think, a little over 3,000 subscribers, and which is really exciting to us because it's been definitely picking up steam online. And what we do is we try and show the natural world in an interesting way through the lens of ants and other arthropods. So we have a couple different series that we've been working on. We've got Ant Keeping 101, which shows people how to keep ants as pets, uh, all the way from just kind of a beginner uh, level where you just want to have like an ant farm or a formicarium, maybe a single queen, all the way up to being an expert, sort of like me, where you have many different ant species that you're caring for. We also have a series called The Ant Explorer, where we take you out into the environment, show you how to find ants, show you some of the awesome behaviors that ants display in the wild. And that's one of my favorite ones. So my team and I, we just wrapped up filming a couple of new Ant Explorer episodes down in Arizona, which Arizona is North America's best place for ants. And we have, I think, over 350 known ant species in that region. 
which is very exciting for us. It gives lots of different opportunities. So we've been filming a lot of new content, and the Ant Network is also a science communication company that's interested in building exhibits for zoos, for museums, for educational institutions all over the world. And my mentor, who happens to be down in Arizona, is Ray Mendez, and he is sort of the world's top insect exhibit builder. So he's done a lot of exhibits for places like the San Diego Zoo, the Smithsonian, zoos over in Australia, and I've been going there pretty much every year to train with him. So you're going to see the Ant Network also expand its reach into museums and zoos through a new line of exhibits, uh, and those are in the prototyping phase right now. So we're really excited to be working on that. With your YouTube channel, I wanted to say, you know, ants are really characterful and people are interested in them. There's a lot of insect and ant content online, which is kind of clickbaity and geared towards the idea of, of their aggression or it's about setting up fights between insects and things. But the ant network, I feel it's created with a sense of respect for the animal and with a passion for the animal and learning about it. And you seem excited about producing excitement in others. So I'd heartily recommend the ant network to anyone interested in learning more. It's a fantastic channel. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. Uh, we we go through, we put a lot of effort into allowing the ants to sort of share their stories and why they are cool without us trying to anthropomorphize them or to drum up excitement over something that wouldn't be as exciting. So we don't want to create fake drama when there's such an abundance of really fascinating behavior and natural drama that we can use to get you excited about nature and about ants themselves. Okay, having just mentioned anthropomorphizing ants, beyond the academic, do you have any favorite representations of the ants within media, within film or books or whatnot? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, maybe as a scientist, as a as an expert in ants, the fact that you would inevitably pull out the inaccuracies in a fictional portrayal of the ant world, I wonder if that was frustrating to you as a as a kind of proliferation of misinformation or if there are films and portrayals of ants that you enjoy. Well, here's what I would say. You have, you know, a a lot of films geared towards kids like uh, A Bug's Life or Ants. Um, You also have one called, I think, The Ant Bully. And those are kind of a cartoonish um, representation of how ants work. But I don't find them problematic because they still get people seeing ants and other insects kind of as living things, as animals. And that's Uh, Something that always surprises me is a lot of people don't even think that insects are animals, and they are. Uh, And they play very, very important roles in each of our lives and roles in the ecosystems that they're in. So, you, you know, you asked about my favorite portrayal. And I think one of my favorite portrayals was the ant bully because it showed uh, basically a kid messing with ants and somehow, you know, spoiler alert, I think he gets shrunk down to the size of an ant and he has to work with the ants to sort of save himself. And it turns out the ants are just like people. They're trying to make, uh, they're trying to make something out of their lives. They're trying to, um, use the resources they have to accomplish tasks. And I also thought that the ant bully had one of the more, um, accurate portrayals of how an ant colony works and some of the ways that they interact with other insects. Of course, there's a lot of creative license that goes into it. Um, And I'd also give a shout out to Marvel's Ant-Man because they did a lot of collaborating with actual ant researchers to get the ants that they show in the film right. 
which we definitely appreciated. There are certain aspects of the film where they took creative license that definitely are not accurate, but uh, they did show definitely some interest in getting things right. And I think that was appreciated by a lot of myrmecologists. I think the reason that we do get so many films set around ant colonies with the hero being an ant or what have you goes back to what you said about how they sort of reflect our society and how we see ourselves reflected in the ants. I mean, so you couldn't have made a film like The Ant Bully, but about ladybirds or ladybugs. The capacity to easily tell a story that feels relevant to us isn't necessarily there with other insects. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. That, and that's one of the reasons I like ants so much is that we can relate to them, but there's also a lot that we can learn from them. And there are many differences between ants and humans. But that sort of baseline that we both live in sort of societies that helps people open their minds and get ready to learn more about what ants do. Well, Miles, thank you so much for giving us your time and for agreeing to speak with me. I really do appreciate it. Absolutely. I, you know, I'm happy to have been a guest and uh, I appreciate the offer. So I, you know, I want to wish you and your listeners luck with this, this podcast series. And I'm definitely looking forward to hearing more from it. So thanks for having me. As I have said, with ants, there's a lot to talk about. They are so variable and so complex in their behaviour that we can't easily do them justice in one go. I hope you come away from this with a bit of a better sense of flying ant day and the life cycle of an ant colony, and a sense of how varied and how fascinating ants and their odd little lives can be. There's so much more to talk about. We've not covered the unique behaviours of some of the most characterful ants. Weaver ants, army ants, carpenter ants, honeypot ants, and leafcutter ants. We've not talked about fungal farms, aphid herds. I've not made any mention yet of ant communication, a vast topic in and of itself. All this I hope will follow. Rubbing in the Filth was written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hatton. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll come back and rejoin me on Rubbing in the Filth. If you have a pertinent anecdote, particularly an anecdote, perhaps from childhood like Miles's, I'd love to read it, so please write to grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com or look for Grubbing in the Filth on Twitter and Instagram. My thanks again to Miles Maxwell of the Ant Network for his expertise in his time. Do check out the Ant Network on YouTube if you want to learn more about ants in the wild or you feel compelled to welcome them into your home. Until next time, don't forget to tear off your wings and metabolise your wing muscles for the good of the colony. Bye!